Previously on Hard Call. I feel like I have a ton of bricks on my chest. His chance of being alive in a year is probably 20% if we keep trying to do what we're doing. And this fella says, I need an LVAD. It's kind of like an artificial heart. But they explain that Sheila, or I don't know who, they're going to have to tinker with it every day to keep it from getting infected. And here's a kicker. I gotta be plugged into a damn battery or a wall outlet all the time. From the University of Colorado, this is Hard Call, the podcast about the toughest choices we're forced to make about our health. I'm Dr. Matt Winia. And I'm Elaine Grant. Hard Call is a dramatization of real stories experienced by real people facing medical dilemmas on this podcast and on the Hard Call stage in front of a live audience. Whenever possible, we use the voices of actual patients and health professionals. When that's not possible, to protect privacy, we sometimes use professional actors to play certain parts. But we'll always let you know if you're listening to an actor or a real decision maker. So this is the second episode of a four-part series we're calling The Electronic Heart. It's the story of a real patient. We're calling him Max to protect his privacy. And in the last episode, we learned that Max has end-stage heart failure. At the end of the episode, Max had just met a new cardiologist. He told Max he should consider getting a left ventricular assist device, or LVAD. And we talked about Max's decision. Should he try to get an LVAD? Today, we're talking about how health professionals make decisions about when to give patients an LVAD. It turns out these decisions aren't based purely on medical issues, and they're also not based just on what patients want. Right. This isn't like a restaurant where you go in and order up an LVAD and they just bring it right out for you. For better or worse, the health professionals who actually implant these devices, they have to think it's a good idea. This can cause conflicts between two of the core principles of medical ethics. The the first is the principle of autonomy, which is the idea that each person gets to choose what medical care they get. The second one is the principle of beneficence. That's the idea that doctors, nurses, really all health professionals, they should always do what's in the best interest of the patient, even when the patient might not think that's what's best for them. So autonomy and beneficence come into conflict a lot? Oh, yeah. This is a classic dilemma in medical ethics. These are the kind of questions that keep a lot of us up at night. It's amazing how often what I think is best for a patient just isn't what they want to do. Okay, but before we get too far into talking about doctors, in our last episode, we asked you to vote. If you were Max, would you want the LVAD? To see the current tally, go to our website, hardcallshow.org. Actually, if you haven't voted yet, it's not too late. Listen to episode one, and then on the website, you can read more about possible risks and benefits of LVADs and cast your vote. You can also join the online conversation about why Max should or shouldn't ask for an LVAD. As a quick recap, if he gets the LVAD, Max hopes he might live at least a little longer And maybe he'd be more comfortable and active. And he says, if it works, and if we do everything just right, I might feel real good. He says, I could sleep in a bed, maybe even ride my motorcycle again. But the risks of getting an LVAD are also big. It could cause a stroke. 
he could die in surgery, or the device could clot up, or it could get infected. Each of these can be deadly or worse. And there are other burdens. With an Alvad, Max would have an electrical cord coming out of his body that has to be plugged into a battery or a wall outlet all the time. And then there's this other huge thing. People getting an LVAD need to have a caregiver, someone who's competent, reliable, and can live with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a month or more after the LVAD's implanted. They have to monitor alarms, change batteries, and keep the LVAD insertion site clean. In Max's case, his caregiver would be his daughter, Sheila. Sheila, or I don't know who. They're going to have to tinker with it every day to keep it from getting infected. And here's a kicker. i got to be plugged into a damn battery or a wall outlet all the time. Max doesn't want to be a burden to Sheila, of course. And he's worried she might screw up. Yeah, Sheila says she'll take care of him, but that's what most relatives say. And this will be one of the biggest issues for Max's doctors. Can Sheila really do all this? Hang on, Matt. We keep getting ahead of ourselves. Before we get further into the doctor's dilemma, the listeners are probably wondering what Max finally decided. Well, Max, it turns out, was willing to risk just about any possible problems with the Alvad because he believed it was his only chance to live longer. In fact, Max eventually told his daughter, Sheila, that he didn't even want to read or hear about the risks or the burdens of the Alvad because they didn't matter. In his mind, it was get the LVAD or die. And I'll bet a lot of people thought the same thing. If you were Max, you wouldn't have much choice either. But not everyone thinks that way. To me, it was a very personal decision. For some people, getting an LVAD is the wrong decision. It was something that, you know, it was his life. And so I had told him the, from the very beginning that whatever you decide, I will be there for you. You know, if you want to do this, I'll be there. And if you decide you don't want to, then I will be there with you every step of the way up until the last moment. That's a woman named Vicey. Vicey Realis. Her husband, Jim, he'd been a gem hunter. We would go digging rocks here, and we loved that. That was one of the most fantastic things in the world, is to dig a stone out of the earth and to realize that's the, you're the first person that's ever touched it. No one else in this world has ever touched that stone when you pull it out of the earth, and it is one of the most amazing things. And Jim was just so good. He loved the stones. He loved working with the stones. But one day, Jim had a heart attack while they were hiking in a state park near Denver. He was 51 years old. Afterward, Jim's health continued to decline, and eventually, Vicey says Jim's doctor urged him to get an LVAD. But Jim couldn't hike anymore. He couldn't do what he loved. And he feared being constantly on edge, being worried for the rest of his life. You know, if the heart, the LVAD goes out, if you're not hooked up to that and your battery goes dead, then you go at that point. There is no coming back. To have that worry the rest of his life, no matter what, he just couldn't do it. Soon after he turned down the LVAD, Jim died. Vicey says he died peacefully on his own terms at home. She has no regrets. It turns out there are big differences in how people make this decision. What's more, a lot of people with heart failure don't get offered an LVAD by their doctors. And when they do, there are differences in how they're offered. 
My name is Dan Matlock. I'm a geriatrician. We talked to an expert about this. I'm an associate professor of medicine here at the University of Colorado. I, uh, I do mostly research, research and shared decision-making around advanced cardiac devices. Dan studies how people make decisions about LVADs. In fact, he's in the midst of a big clinical trial on shared decision-making around LVADs. Three years, a couple million dollars on six hospital campuses across the country. But he originally got interested in this topic, not because of the LVAD itself, but because of a much more common device that lots of patients get. It's called an implantable defibrillator. There was this guy when I was a second-year resident at one of the private hospitals here in town that we rotated through, um, where we don't have a lot of control at the private hospitals. And I admitted him. He was from the San Luis Valley. He was a farmer. And he said, I don't want a lot of things done to me. And then... He comes in with heart failure. I think he was in his late 70s, maybe early 80s. And then I go to see him the next morning, and he's gone. And he's downstairs in the electrophysiology lab getting one of these implanted devices. And this is around 2004, 2005, when these were just starting to take off and have expanded indications. And then I went and talked to him afterwards, and he had no idea what he had gotten. And I've always regretted not talking to him more about that. And he left the next day. And he said he didn't want a lot of things done, and now he has this device inside of him that could potentially shock him. So my initial interest in these devices really came from the defibrillators. And then as I was a geriatric fellow, a little further in my training, there were patients on hospice in the VA nursing home who were dying, wanted to die peacefully, and then had this device, this ICD inside them. And the did, defibrillator. Again, the defibrillator, yeah. ICD stands for implantable cardioverter defibrillator. And they didn't want to turn it off because they thought that was either playing God or the VA was trying to kill them or whatever. And it didn't make any sense. I remember thinking to myself, why am I, this geriatric trainee, having these three-hour discussions with these families about this device? And how did they not know that this might be something they'd want to turn off? And that's how I got interested in shared decision-making, and that's kind of what started my research career. And so all my early work was in defibrillators. So Dan started down this path of trying to determine what a patient truly valued about his or her life, and then trying to help doctors actually treat according to those values. A lot of times, that doesn't happen. And along comes a perfect way to study those questions. And then a good friend and colleague, Larry Allen, came and said, you know what? You know about this LVAD, this left ventricular assist device? This thing is a really fascinating therapy. It's really potentially beneficial and really potentially burdensome. Dan Matlock's early research proved there was a lot of variation in how different patients approached this decision. Um, One of our early studies, about half the patients really wanted to know everything. Tell me all the risks. Tell me all the benefits. Let me think about it. And the other half said, I don't care. I'm dying, and I don't want to do that do whatever you need to. I don't care what the risks are. It's give me the LVAD or I push up daisies is the one quote I remember. And so that study sort of led into, we need to make some sort of intervention to help patients really understand what they're getting into. Regardless of what path you go down, you need to know that both paths are an option before you do something this major. But he also learned that some patients were getting information only from a pretty biased source, brochures from the companies that make LVADs. One of the industry materials basically starts out with a patient saying, well, there isn't much a decision. It's either get the LVAD or die. And that's not 
an unbiased presentation to help somebody make a decision about what's right for them. That is biased somebody trying to sell something, which isn't isn't evil. It's what the companies are supposed to do, but it's certainly not ethical from a informed consent, patient-centered perspective. Well, and this is not a consumer product. This is not... <laughs> I decide to buy an iPhone versus an Android. This is, do I implant something in my heart or not? Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that. I mean, that's one of the challenges in healthcare with, with consumer bringing consumers in to a lot of these things is they have a different perspective. They're trying to sell something. So to alleviate this ethical tension, Dr. Matlock has been studying and promoting shared decision-making. So my favorite definition of shared decision-making is a meeting between experts, where you have a clinician who's supposedly an expert in the medical facts and the science behind what's available and why. And then you have a patient who's an expert in who they are and what's important to them. And if you bring these two perspectives together, then you're sharing a decision where you're bringing the medical facts and information and the patient's values and perspectives. That's a shared decision. So that sounds like common sense. Why would anybody need to even define that or create a field out of it? Well, because I think there's enough evidence now we don't do a good job with it. Um, there's a lot of evidence that patients are completely uninformed about the therapies they're getting. There was an article in the New England Journal, one of our top journals, that asked people with incurable cancer who were getting chemo. And the chemo was not going to cure their cancer. It was incurable cancer. And asked them how many people thought their chemo was for cure. And for one group, I think the colon cancer group, about 80% thought the chemo was supposed to cure them. And for the lung cancer group, 60% thought the chemo was going to cure them. That is completely uninformed. Actually, I looked this study up it was 69% of patients with incurable lung cancer who thought chemotherapy could cure them. Why is that? I mean, it's dumbfounding, actually. I think there's a couple reasons. I think with something like, like what I was talking about earlier, the defibrillator, I think the doctors believe this is a therapy that will save their life. We should just do this. We don't need to have a long discussion. It could save their life. And my job as a doctor is to save their life. That seems to be what Max is saying. The doctor who mentioned the LVAD to him left him with the impression that he didn't really have any choice. It was get the LVAD or die right away. And that's why Max didn't want to hear about risks or burdens of the LVAD. Yes, but Dan Matlock says there's a second reason doctors don't talk to patients about the option not to get an LVAD. And then I think with things like the incurable cancer where saving the life isn't really on the table, it's now sort of avoiding the conversation around death, the death taboo, not wanting to talk about sort of the elephant in the room. Or I think doctors aren't comfortable with that because it's there's a culture in medicine that that we are here to help people, and helping people means saving lives. I'm familiar with that culture. That's the one that ends up with patients with incurable cancer getting more and more chemotherapy, despite the fact it's unlikely to help and very likely to make their remaining time much worse. 
We mentioned before, patients with advanced heart failure, most of them will die within five years. So maybe Dan is saying we should be thinking of getting an LVAD in the way that we think about decisions around how to treat incurable cancer, where, as he put it, saving life really isn't on the table. Close, but not exactly, because he also knows that some people with heart failure get an LVAD and they really do live longer, and their quality of life is better. Without the LVAD, one out of 10 people would would be alive in a year. So nine out of 10 would die. With the LVAD, eight out of 10 are alive in a year. So two out of 10 would die. But the LVAD, the LVAD challenge is that in its own way, in that that year for those eight people is very different. For some of those people, they're doing okay. For some of those people, they're having infections, strokes, bleeding. Um, so it's not all popcorn, puppies, and pony rides when you get these things. <laughs> um, it, it can be tough. Popcorn, puppies, and pony rides, right. No, uh, getting an LVAD is definitely tougher than those things. But, you know, Max apparently doesn't want to hear it. Max has basically decided he wants to try and get an LVAD to treat his heart failure no matter the risk. And, And you can understand that. He's desperate. But he's also still smoking. He's probably drinking. His primary caretaker is his daughter, who's not very reliable. So I know this, this is going to sound co- condescending, but I think we have to ask, is he making the right choice? So I talked with Dr. Matlock specifically about Max's case and his decision to ask for the LVAD. I told him that Max wanted the LVAD because he thought it was his best shot at staying alive longer but he hadn't really looked at the medical risks very closely. So to me, it seems like this was more of a gut decision for Max. At the heart of this, this is a question for patients of how badly do I want to live? Mm -hmm. Do do you think that's the case? Yes and no. I think it does come down. It is very much a life and death decision. But one of the patients who decided not to get one of these devices said to us, He says, people ask me, don't you want to live? And I say, of course I want to live. But I don't necessarily want to live like that. And I'm dying anyway, and I'll die with that device or I'll die without it. So it's really life with a device or life without a device. Because both have benefits and both have risks. Life without a device might not be as long. Life with a device is going to come with a lot of changes and burdens. And yeah, you might live longer. Um, but you're going to die with that device then somewhere down the road. And so it, it is a life and death decision, but it's also not. And so we've, I, I can see how it feels that way, but we've tried to reframe it a little bit because you're going to die with it anyway. That's just a truth. So in the end, what does he think of Max's decision to ask for an LVAD? Does he think this is the right decision for Max? It's interesting because he understood that Max's decision to ask for the LVAD seems very driven by an instinctual fear of dying and not so much by any careful weighing of possible burdens and benefits of life with or without it. And actually, in his research, more than half of potential LVAD patients are like this. They just don't want to hear very much about the risks. So I wondered, 
Is there any way to help patients get beyond that gut-level fear of dying so they can be open to a lot of information in a way that would allow them to make a truly thoughtful decision even when there's not much time? To find out more about this, I called another shared decision-making expert, Dr. Jennifer Blumenthal-Barbie. I prefer Jenny. What is your title? So I am an associate professor of medical ethics and also the associate director of medical ethics in the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Barbie's team is in Texas. I asked both doctors, Jenny and Dan, about helping people make better decisions in these highly charged situations. Dr. Barbie is particularly worried about decisions being influenced by how information might be presented. These are very serious decisions, and we would think that it's just influenced by this kind of cold, rational weighing the pros and cons. Um, but we know that it's, it's very much influenced by all these fine, sort of quirks. So if you tell a patient you have a 20 in 100 chance of getting a stroke if you get the LVAD, we know that, that people tend to have a bias to kind of overemphasize that frequency. 20 feels like a really big number, as opposed to if we just said 20% of people have a stroke because 20 and 100 feels really real to them. And there's no objective fact about which one is the right frame. And so what we try to do is we try to give them both frames so that they can sort of have a more balanced presentation of, oh, okay, well, 20, 20 and 100, but that's, that's really only 20%, and maybe 20% doesn't feel as big. Another thing we know about framing information in numbers is that people are more influenced by, for example, an incision aid. If you tell them the chances of something going wrong during the surgery or the chances of dying, right? If you say there's a 10% chance of dying during the surgery, that feels really salient to people and they might be more risk adverse as opposed to if you say there's a 90% chance of surviving or living after the surgery. So percentages can sound smaller than proportions to some people, even if they mean the same thing. And a 50% risk of dying sounds worse than a 50% chance of survival, even though they're the same thing too. And those little differences in how information is presented can make a big difference in the decisions that people make. That's right. And sometimes the information can be presented in particular ways because of the presenter's perspective. I mean, let's be honest. There might be hospitals, doctors, and certainly manufacturers who might want to present information in a way that encourages patients to want to get an LVAD. I pressed Dan about that. How do we deal with the fact that the perspective of the person influences what they're telling us? Yeah. Well, well I think that's exactly why we need for big decisions like this, we need a more standardized approach. And that question that you just asked is one of the driving questions behind a lot of our work is trying to standardize that so it isn't like that. We see that all over the country, huge variations in how people practice. And the care you get is a really dependent on what door you walked in. Um, you know, if you go into one hospital, you might come out with one type of procedure, you go in a different hospital, you might get a completely different procedure based on the cultures of those two institutions. So there are problems with knowing the perspective of who's talking to the patient or presenting information. And there are problems with the fact that basic human emotions get in the way of our ability sometimes to make thoughtful decisions. Yeah, like fear. It's one of the big reasons why so many patients who have to decide about LVADs don't want to hear the risks like Max. 
Right. When I asked Dan what doctors should do when they have a patient like Max, he said the first thing to do is just recognize their fear, that being afraid in these situations, it's normal. We wanted to acknowledge, this is scary. You are between a rock and a hard place. Um, because there's some literature in other fields in psychology that just acknowledging that it's scary will help people actually be able to say, yeah, it is scary. And that helps them get to a place where they can think about the risks and benefits. If you're so focused on fear of dying, I mean, because fear of dying and not wanting to die could be a very rational decision. And fear of dying and not wanting to die could be a very sort of quick, knee-jerk, not very well-thought-out decision. So does he think this decision by Max was driven by visceral fear and not very well thought out? Well, more important than that, actually, is I wanted to know, what should Max's doctors do if they don't think it's a good decision? I mean, Max's fear of dying is a rational fear. He's very likely to die in the next several months. So who are his doctors to tell Max his decision to try an LVAD is a bad one? Yeah, and since Matlock's in favor of shared decisions, I'm going to guess he isn't a big proponent of doctors telling patients, I think you made a bad decision, so I'm just going to override it. In medical ethics, we call that paternalism. And it's gotten a pretty bad reputation in recent decades. That's right. In fact, an article in the National Journal about Dan and his work said he's trying to, quote, dismantle the power differential in the doctor-patient relationship. So I asked him, is it true he's trying to dismantle a power relationship? Oh, I think that's very true. I think this power differential in medicine, while it's hard to dismantle, that might be a strong word because it's almost impossible to dismantle that. But to have both sides acknowledge where they are and have clinicians recognize that they're in a position of power and have patients recognize that maybe they need to exert their preferences a little more. I think both groups need to need to recognize that. I heard a good quote, we have to get doctors off their pedestals and patients off their knees. And I love that quote because it kind of captures it. I think both groups kind of have to do some work here. Doctors need to make sure they know that patients' perspectives matter and maybe slow down before you do something like an LVAD. And patients need to know that if they don't say what their wishes are, nobody's going to hear them. Okay, but if patients should be empowered and doctors should listen more, does that mean they should go ahead with getting Max and LVAD, even if they're worried that's a bad decision? He put it a bit differently. The thing he's worried about is that patients end up making big decisions by default. We have this default to do, this default to intervene. The, I've seen it written called a technological imperative. We have this seems to be this cultural view that we have to do something. These technologies are well-intended, and for many people, they can be very good. Um, that's what makes this so hard. It's not technology bad, but it is selling technology and overselling technology. That is bad. I'm very comfortable saying that. statement where I basically tell patients I see myself as a consultant. It's your body and your life and I'm here to just try and help you live the life you want to live. But I think it's hard for a lot of docs because of our culture. It's a little bit it's it's a little bit counterculture to have those discussions because our culture, the way we're taught in med school is our job is to prolong life and that's what you do. And that's actually not evil. 
It just doesn't always work. Dr. Barbie also worries about default decisions, which she calls the default bias. People will often make decisions according to what the status quo is as it is laid out to them. And they'll go along with that status quo and they won't necessarily want to change it. And so an example of this is some researchers did an experiment where they had patients fill out living wills or advanced directives. And they changed the default on that advanced directive such that one group of patients had it sort of checked um, the box that said, you know, if I were ever in a terminal condition, I would not want to receive life-sustaining treatment. And then the other group of people had the box checked to indicate that they would like to receive life-sustaining treatment. Um, And so they gave these people these forms, and they asked them to sort of make a hypothetical decision to act as if they were really filling out this advanced directive and what they would do. And um, what they found was they found that the group that had received the default to sort of nudge them away from life-sustaining treatment, most of those patients actually said, I would not want life-sustaining treatment in that situation. Um, And then the other group that were nudged towards towards life-sustaining treatment, they found that they sort of stuck with that default, nobody really changed it, and that group was more likely to indicate the opposite. What's really powerful about that is something as big as an end-of-life decision seemed to be driven by whatever was set up as sort of the default, such that the patient had to take some kind of intervention or positive action to say that they wanted something different than what was set up by the default. So for Max, getting the LVAD might have been the default decision because it's in the American culture, or at least the American medical culture, to go ahead and try a high-tech treatment if it's available. Right. Max might just be doing what's human nature. He's making a decision that's the default decision. But I'm wondering more and more now about the decisions his doctors and nurses and the rest of his care team are going to have to make. After all, it's just one doctor who brought this up to Max. And now Max has decided he wants to try and get one. What if that's not actually a good decision? What if he's getting himself in over his head? Should his doctors say no? That's a real concern because by some pretty important criteria, Max is not a terrific candidate for an LVAD. Maybe it could help in theory, medically, but people who get LVADs need to be ready and able to take care of them. Max is still drinking, he's a smoker, and his primary caregiver at home will be his daughter. She's been stopped for driving under the influence several times and might not be very reliable. Yeah, the specialist who mentioned the LVAD to Max, he probably didn't know all that, but his regular doctors do. So how should his doctors take those kinds of social factors into account? Things like smoking or drinking or not having a reliable caregiver, or, or should they take them into account at all? I spoke with Dr. Matlock about Max's decision that he wants to try to get an LVAD, and I asked about what his doctor should do now, since he and Sheila are not great candidates for taking good care of one. And LVADs are difficult to care for, so if he's medically well-suited to get one, should it matter that his social or lifestyle circumstances aren't very good? How do you decide Mm -hmm. about lifestyle choices of a patient when you're offering aggressive, expensive therapy? Well, I think that could, the decision could be made on two levels. As a society, we could decide we don't want to offer expensive therapies to people who are smoking or are obese or are doing things we don't like. That's a societal decision. Um, we, have, we in this country don't want to have that discussion. So 
it's not really fair then the doctors who are seeing a patient dying who happens to smoke to tell them you can't do these therapies that might help them live longer, that the patient might be informed about and would want. You, you want the doctors then to jump in and say, oh, you're a smoker, so I'm not going to do this? I don't think that's a fair position for that patient or that doctor. I think it's a very good discussion for us as a society to start having, but that's very different than the intimate encounter between the clinicians and the patient. So I get it. Uh, he'd like to have a larger conversation in society about whether social circumstances ought to matter in medical decisions. I think a lot of doctors would like that. That's part of what the hard call program is about. But in the meantime, doctors still have to make decisions about who gets LVADs. So here's my question. If a patient has a significant risk factor for a bad outcome with an LVAD, shouldn't that count toward deciding whether or not the doctors should move forward and implant the LVAD? I mean, if there's a medical risk factor, like, like say a medical condition that makes it less likely the LVAD will work, you'd assume the doctors might not offer it to people with that condition, right? Or even something totally made up. I mean, let's say LVADs don't work as well in people with blue eyes and curly hair. That's not true, of course, but let's just say it is. So you'd think doctors ought to avoid implanting LVADs in people with blue eyes and curly hair, right? I mean, is it any different if it's not a physical trait, but a personal or a social circumstance or habit? that makes it less likely the LVAD will work? If people who drink and smoke, people who don't really have reliable caregivers, if they have complications more often, if they have worse outcomes with LVADs, shouldn't the doctors take that into account? I see what you mean. And I asked Dan Matlock about that. There's also a slippery slope about those kinds of things because smoking and obesity are more prevalent in poorer communities. So by saying we're not going to do this for people who smoke, or we're not going to do this for people who are overweight because they should have taken care of themselves, that could be actually making the disparities we see in care actually worse because you're, you're, sort, of, you're sort of inadvertently keeping these procedures away from poorer people, perhaps. It's just it's so complicated. Everybody, <laughs> you know, everybody has their vices. Um, and so it's really hard to make those judgments. A remarkable part of the decision about whether to get an LVAD is that it's not just you. Getting an LVAD can also be really challenging for your family. Mary is a nurse practitioner who cared for Max when he was in the hospital. When we have concerns, we meet usually one-on-one with caregivers to kind of sort out their abilities um, and also their, their commitment. Mary's voice is disguised here. And remember, we're also using fake names to protect the privacy of the real Max and his daughter. I asked Mary what the team did as a result of their worries about Sheila's ability to care for her dad if he were to get an LVAD. With her, it was less of an issue about commitment. It was more about her ability. Mary described for us the extensive medical testing that patients who want an LVAD have to go through. Blood testing, liver biopsies, right heart catheterization, even dental exams. And that's all trying to make sure there are no medical issues that go unnoticed. But the biggest factor for Max turned out to be a lot less tangible. Some members of the team worried that Sheila might not be capable. In fact, they thought she probably had a mild cognitive disability. She was just a very simple, concrete person um, that if we told her 
to hook up the battery to the white cord. She would always hook up the battery to the white cord. But when we talk about troubleshooting an alarm, I don't think she was able to do that. Mary's not the only one with those concerns. Another member of the team who met with both Max and Sheila said that Sheila has limited insight into the amount of time and care involved in being a caregiver. Another one said she's, quote, unrealistic in terms of day-to-day management and long-term outcome. And maybe most worrisome, they noted that Sheila has a very limited network of friends. She couldn't name a single person who might be able to come and be with her at the hospital during the operation if Max were to get the LVAD. This made them worry. Sheila might be so afraid of her father's mortality that she could have talked Max into asking for the LVAD for what they worried might be, uh, and I'm quoting here, selfish reasons. So you mean she was so terrified to lose her father because she didn't have anyone else? That's right. That's a little scary because I talked to Mary about what happens when something goes wrong with the LVAD, something gets screwed up with the battery or, or gets unplugged. And this is what she says. I think it's scary for patients. The other thing is when they're hooking up from battery to power, not to to basically the wall outlet, um, it will beep briefly because there will be a point while they're making that connection that they won't be hooked up. Um, So I think patients kind of get used to it if, if, I don't know that for sure, but um, I mean, we hear it all the time in the hospital. You're like, beep, beep, and then you know they're making the connection. And you get really worried when you start to hear, like, beep, 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 beep. And, and then people start looking into the room and seeing what's going on. But for all of this worry about having a competent caregiver at home, Mary said the team doesn't have any specific criteria for who can serve as a caregiver. You can imagine we're not going to start giving IQ tests to patients' family members. So these decisions today are made largely on a gut feeling. And it turns out this type of scenario isn't that uncommon. Here's Dr. Barbie again at Baylor. I asked her about how they make decisions about LVADs. They struggle all the time with this. They only want to put LVADs in patients that they have reason to believe will do reasonably well. Um, And so they struggle with dealing with these medical uncertainties of an individual patient's level of risk. I think they also struggle as a team because they have different perspectives. They have a surgical perspective, which might be a little bit more oriented towards intervention. And then they have a cardiologist perspective, which in certain cases might be more cautious. And so those are all things that as a team, they have weekly meetings to discuss every single patient that might potentially be a candidate for this device. And they discuss the pros and the cons, and they discuss whether this is medically indicated and psychosocially indicated or acceptable for each individual patient. And those are complicated discussions, and they're discussions that involve a lot of perspectives and a lot of weighing um, and sometimes disagreement. But I think what's really important is that process, that that's a process that includes a lot of reflection and a lot of different perspectives before the ultimate decision is made about whether to offer a patient a left ventricular assist device. The team in Colorado has a weekly meeting, too, with the physicians, nurses, and the palliative care team is required to be on board for anyone receiving an LVAD for destination therapy. Remember from episode one, destination therapy is when you get an LVAD and you don't have the prospect of eventually getting a heart transplant. That's what Max is looking at. 
Destination therapy as in the final destination. Right. And the other people who are deeply involved in these conversations are social workers. Social work is especially important in these conversations. The caregivers can't hold another job while they're serving as a caregiver. So social work support can be critical. The family has to live within two hours of the hospital for at least three months after the LVAD is implanted. So a lot of families have to pick up and move. Okay, listeners, we've come to the next hard call. I expect you want more information, maybe about Sheila, maybe about Max, maybe about the team or about the LVAD operation. But this is pretty typical in medicine. We often have to make decisions based on imperfect information. And at this point, you know about as much as the team knew at the time they had to vote on whether to give Max an LVAD. So if you were on Max's medical team, would you say yes or no to offering Max an LVAD? Log on to our website, hardcallshow.org, and cast your vote. Remember, you are not voting as yourself. You're voting as a doctor, nurse, or a social worker on Max's team. And you know Max says he wants the LVAD, but you also know he's tried to avoid thinking too much about potential risks. And you know Sheila says she's willing to be his caregiver, but she might not be able to handle problems beyond those that are very basic. If you want to learn more about how social factors can play out in medical decisions, there's more information on our website, including a selection of scientific research and stories. There are also some articles about the basic ethical tension here between beneficence and autonomy and who gets to decide, the doctor or the patient. So after you vote, join the discussion forum on the website where you can defend your vote and interact with hard call listeners from around the world. In our next episode, we'll find out whether Max was offered the LVAD and what happened next. Thanks for listening to Hard Call. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Hard Call Show and invite your friends to listen and vote. Also, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for other folks to find the Hard Call podcast. Hard Call is a production of the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities. It's produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant, and by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Winia. Actor Robert Michael Sanders played Max. Music was composed by Andrew Randall and Chris McClung. We had theatrical assistance from Charles Packard, former executive director of the Aurora Fox Theater in Aurora, Colorado. Special thanks to our Hard Call Humanities Advisory Team, Dr. Abraham Nussbaum and Professors Tess Jones, Philip Joseph, and Lisa Karanen. And finally, Colleen McKelvinen and Drs. Dan Matlock and Larry Allen provided invaluable clinical guidance as we produced Max's story. If you'd like to be the first to know when our next series comes out, please sign up on our mailing list at hardcallshow.org. Next time on Hard Call. I want the doctors to turn it off. I want to be done. Turn it off. The doctor justifiably could say in this case that he had the right to say, I am not going to perform a medical procedure that I feel would bring about this patient's death unjustifiably.